Josh <sighs> is such a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash CodeClimate. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash SendGrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 142 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. Thundercats! Oh! Josh Susser. Space Ghost. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Hoth. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that is Greg. I didn't even ask how to say your last name. How do you say your name, Greg? It's Greg Bogus, and it's actually a, a point of contention amongst even my family members, so don't feel bad about that. <laughs> but I'm calling from Chicago. All right. Well, that's, wow. not, that's not the only controversy we're going to have on this show. Before we get going too far, I just want to point out, we are going to be talking about mental illness and depression on this episode. So if that bothers you or if that's something that uh, you need to deal with in a certain way, uh, we just wanted to make the, make you aware so that uh, um, we don't upset anybody too much. But uh, we are going to be discussing it, and we know that it is a sensitive issue. So just want to point that out. On a little bit lighter note, we actually reached our goal on our Teespring campaign. Thank you to everybody who bought a T-shirt or a hoodie. Yay! Thank you! Woo! Or had to replace a T-shirt because they washed it with a towel. All right, that's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) You forgot to say a red towel. (laughs) Turns out those things bleed. Who knew? Yeah. (laughs) If you wanted a pink T-shirt, ask James how to get one. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, thanks again. We'll probably do another campaign in another year or something. If you want them sooner, just harass us, and then we'll talk about when we want to do it. And uh, yeah, so Greg, do you want to introduce yourself and then we'll get going on the episode? Yeah, uh, my name's Greg. I'm, uh, for the last six and a half years, I've been working for a consultancy here in Chicago called Table XI. We're a rail shop. But starting in about a week, I'll be a developer evangelist at Twilio in part so that I can do more speaking at conferences. Last year, I've been speaking about depression and mental illness at various tech conferences. Yeah, that's, that's where I know you from. I, I was at Mountain West. Ruby conference last year and uh, you spoke about it. It was really interesting both during the conference and we actually wound up going to lunch or dinner or something afterward with a bunch of other folks and and having that same conversation. Yeah, it was a, I really appreciated talking to you. That was actually the first time I'd ever given the full length talk and there was this bit of right before I got on stage like what the hell am I doing? Why am I going to get up in front of a couple hundred people and talk about this stuff. So I was talking to you, you know, almost immediately afterwards. And I just, I appreciated your encouragement afterwards. It was really reassuring. So that leads to an excellent first question. What the hell are you doing, Craig? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. I have type two bipolar and ADHD. I got diagnosed about seven years ago and the ADD, I accepted a little bit more readily. I, I went to see someone cause I had read some books and was like, ah, that, I think that's me. I had failed out of school and just had some, um, some pretty rough patches and couldn't figure out what was going on. 
So I saw a therapist. She says, you definitely have ADD. I think you also have type 2 bipolar. And I was like, no, I'll take the ADD uh, and you can keep the bipolar. And I, so I pretty much lived in denial. I started treatment about five years ago or so because things just got really bad. And it's like, whatever treatment looks like, it can't be much worse than where I'm at. Um, I take a pill every morning for the bipolar. Life got so much better. But the reason I started speaking about it is that about a year and a half ago, we had a developer come start working with us. And his name was Caleb. And he was just incredibly bright. I got to pair with him quite a bit. And he's just a great teacher. But he started doing a lot of the same things that I was doing before I got treated. So just like showing up late to work and calling in sick and with different excuses all the time. And so I just shared my story with him. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I think that I might have something similar like that. And so I uh, gave him a couple numbers and he set up an appointment with a psychiatrist for a few weeks out. His appointment was set up for a Friday. He called in sick on Thursday. He sent me an email just saying it's been a rough few days. And then we found out later that he missed his appointment on the Friday and then he died the next day of a drug overdose. Uh, it was accidental. And he didn't make it to his appointment because he had run out of money. So I was scheduled to give a talk about genetic algorithms and fantasy football uh, in the office a few weeks later. And I went to the guys and I just said, hey, how about instead of talking about that, I just basically get up and I say, I have bipolar, I have ADD, I think Caleb did too, he died. If you guys want to talk about this stuff, let me know. It's just a quick lightning talk. And they were awesome. They have continued to be awesome, super encouraging. And so I got up, I gave the talk, and that day I had a couple people IM me saying, hey, can I have the number for your therapist or your psychiatrist? So... I applied to speak at some conferences. I got accepted to way more than I expected. Um, I kind of assumed that there were more people in the tech community like me who were struggling with this stuff, who maybe had an inkling that they had this, but didn't know what to do or didn't want to accept it. And what I've just been blown away by the last year and a half is just how many people actually are suffering from this stuff. It's way more than I would have expected. I think the way more than you expected is like shocking that you know how much mental health issues we have you know not just in the world but in our country that you know I, I worked on a mental health startup for two years and learned a lot about the field and you know it's all the way from about half of people you know throughout their lives have something going on that would be like a diagnosable mental illness like to the point where they should be getting some sort of treatment. It's like, it's just like, you know, one in two people have something like that come up throughout the course of their life. And in any given year, it's like a quarter of the population. You know, Josh, I, I like what you said right there about um, should be getting some kind of treatment. And uh, Greg talks a lot about this in his talk, and I've definitely seen it too, but it's kind of a stigma against getting treatment, uh, you know, against admitting that you have these problems, <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. it's very true. Well, I, I think there are two things here, and, and one thing I'm going to say is a little bit insensitive, but I want to just put it out there, and that is is that, uh, you know, I've known people who have, you know, have claimed a mental illness. They don't exhibit any behaviors that make them seem any different from anyone else, and then they use that as an excuse for this, that, or the other. And the other thing is is that people are afraid of people who are different. And I mean, it's, it's one thing if, if somebody has like a physical disability, cause you pretty much know how to deal with that, or at least you, you understand, you know, what's there, you know, somebody can't hear or can't 
see or can't talk or walk or whatever. But with, with those, I mean, it's somebody that's unpredictable. And usually when those people are depicted, they're depicted in a way where they do things that are totally crazy and off the wall. Uh, I probably shouldn't say crazy, but they do things that are, are, are very different. And, uh, you know, and that's scarier to a lot of people than something that they can just see and touch and kind of at least somewhat understand. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a, a very different, we certainly treat mental illnesses quite differently than we treat physical illnesses. On the physical illness, James, I really appreciated your Gogu Ruko talk. And I was just curious how, because you were actually talking there about how you were treated differently with the servers who will come up and they'll still ask your wife what it is you want to eat. And I'm just curious, what was your response after giving that talk, people coming up and talking to you, and, and how did that feel for you to get up? And, and obviously, it's easier to hide a mental illness than your disability. But what did that feel like for you? And what was kind of the general response when people came up and talked to you afterwards? It's a good question. You know, it's like you say, you know, people look at me and there's no doubt that I have a disability. So it's not like it was, you know, the worst kept secret ever. Actually, the reason I did it is because people commonly want to know things and uh, are generally just afraid to ask them. And I, I think that's probably good to be cautious in general because you don't know what's going to bother a particular person or, or whatever. But I'm just not like that. I'm totally an open book and I'll tell you anything you want to know. And and so I really just wanted to do it to let people know, you can ask me whatever you want. And if I can answer it, I will, you know. And um, a lot of times at conferences, people will actually pull my wife aside because uh, she's always around when I'm around, right, helping me do things and stuff like that. And they'll pull her aside and ask her questions, and she'll just come and get me and bring them to me, you know, and have them ask me or whatever, because she knows I don't care. And she encouraged me to do it. She's like, you know, there's lots of things people want to know and just have no idea about. Or What's interesting is some things are surprisingly different, like, if you get far enough out of your context, it can be amazing how quick the world uh, changes. And I think people don't realize that sometimes. I was kind of constrained at Gogoruko because I was in my manual wheelchair and so I couldn't move around and that kind of thing. But I gave the talk again here locally in my electric wheelchair where I could do some other things. And I showed people what shaking hands is like for me, uh, which is something we do at all of our conferences, right? But it's a uh, surprisingly crazy thing that you just can't understand until you consider all the factors involved. And you could see it was very eye-opening to people to uh, discuss that. At the same time, I, I, I would not say I've had as many people, you know, come up to me and uh, as you have. I've had tons and tons of people thank me for doing it. But, you know, the, the odds of somebody else having, you know, my exact conditions, if they do, they're going to know, you know. So I don't think I was a channel for other people to see help as much as uh, just uh, expanding your worldview kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, what I loved about it is that we live in a culture that does not in any way promote or reward talking about your weaknesses or talking about like being vulnerable, especially in front of big crowds of people. And you guys were saying earlier about the stigma attached to things, attached to mental illness. Like if you were struggling with, say, cancer or diabetes, and it was affecting your ability to get up out of bed or to go to work, 
nobody would say that you were using that diagnosis as a crutch. And we often talk about the difference between physical and mental illnesses, but there's a TED talk, I can't remember who gave it. He says that we should probably stop using the phrase mental illness and start talking about brain illnesses because people forget that the brain is just as much an organ in your body as, say, your kidneys or your heart, and it can malfunction. And there are some very good doctors and very good researchers who have come up with very good treatments for this that have helped tons of people. But for some reason, and and I think that it's, Chuck, for a lot of the reasons you said, it's harder to diagnose, like it's harder if someone has depression to look at them and say, yeah, you definitely have something biologically uh, malfunctioning in your body than if someone were to say, look at James. But there are a lot of people who would really benefit from going to see a doctor. And if it was a physical condition, there would be no hesitation and no stigma around doing so. But because it's uh, a mental condition or something having to do with their brain or something just above their neck, uh, they're not nearly as likely to go see somebody. Greg, well, I don't disagree in general with what you're saying, and I think the message there is really important. I don't want us to exclude people who are actually dealing with highly stigma-laden physical issues. Wholeheartedly agree. Sure, yeah, yeah, there are yeah. there are plenty. But uh, it is kind of a point. I've seen even in just uh, my local group of friends, you know, friends that are reluctant to go see a psychiatrist because they were concerned that they might need medication or something like that. Yet, if that same person had a heart problem or a kidney problem or whatever that required some medication, I know they wouldn't think twice about going and, and getting that drug, you know? Right. right. So, or say so, if their eyes didn't work, they wouldn't think twice about wearing glasses. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a lot of, you know, speaking of stigma, I think there's stigma associated with some of the, some of the medication based treatments. And back in the eighties, you know, it was sort of like the era of Prozac. And I think at one point, like over 10% of the country was taking Prozac and people who were on Prozac, like you could tell they were on Prozac. They had sort of, <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, yeah. now that's what? just reality TV, right? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I don't watch reality TV. So, so I, I would say, Chuck, 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 Chuck let, me, let me just finish, finish what, I, okay. what I'm saying here is that I think that like I've actually talked to friends who have avoided going and getting therapy because they didn't want to be put on some sort of psych med that they felt would like prevent them from enjoying the little of life that they got to enjoy. Mm hmm. So there are definitely people who they don't actually have a good idea of what, you know, therapy could be like and what the different ways of getting treatment are. But there's this whole range of treatment options that are available. Some of them involve meds, some of them involve talk therapy, some of, you know, and there's, and there's other things as well. So it's, it's just, a, you know, focusing on the meds. I think, you know, meds are an important component of the options we have, but it's not all about that. And there's plenty of ways that you can get help that don't involve putting strange chemicals in your brain that you may not enjoy. Yeah, I maybe I maybe wasn't clear about that. What I meant to say is that the thought of possibly having to take meds sometimes talks people out of even just going to see a psychiatrist. Like you right. don't know you don't know they're going to put you on meds or that you even need meds or anything like that, right? Or there right. there are plenty of psychiatrists that, you know, uh, believe in non-med approaches, you know, and and things like that. What I'm saying is that the stigma is there and it may even kill the game before it ever gets started. Right? Agree. Agree. So what my question is then, and I'm going to spend some of my uh, ignorance currency here because 
I mean, I've, I've not experienced this much. I don't know very many people that, you know, have really gone through something like this. And so what I want to know is how do you diagnose yourself at least to the point where you know that you need help? And then the other question that I'm going to ask in a, in a little bit so you can be thinking about it is how do you identify the people who are sort of in trouble and help them without triggering some of these stigmas in their own head? But Yeah, but, that's that's an excellent question. But um, the first one I really want to know is, you know, how do you know you're kind of in that danger zone and need help? Yeah, that's great. What helped for me or what finally got me to go see someone is looking at patterns in my life because everybody has periods when they are happy and periods when they are sad. Like that's the normal human condition. Um, you don't want to just have a monotonous life. What I started to realize was that I would look at my life, especially when I was going through the depths of it. I had just moved to Chicago. I was broke. I really didn't enjoy my job at, um, at certain parts of it. Uh, I just failed out of school and was like, of course I'm depressed. Why wouldn't I be depressed? You know, I have all these life situations that are just making things really hard. Um, and then things would start to change. Uh, and I'd get a new job that I really enjoyed or I, you know, had some money in my checking account. And I would go through periods where, you know, I'd be happy for a couple of days. And then I'd look back and say, oh man, like I still, I have this job I love, but I still can't get out of bed to go to it. I recognized that I had talents and abilities that I could code and that I had ideas. And after I looked back on the last year or two, I would see I, none of those things have come to fruition. And I know that I want it. Like I know, no, no, that I want it. Uh, and I know that I'm capable of doing this. Why is this not happening? Like I can understand if I had a week or two where things weren't getting done, but this is like I'm making no progress here. No matter how many times I say like this time it's going to be different. And I fought, I did not want to take meds and I fought it and I was like, I'm going to man up. I want to try harder. I, you know, I want to stop being lazy and this time it's going to be different. And maybe sometimes I could, I could make that last for a week or two, but then I'd always end up right back in the same place. So for me, you know, I would hope that other people can learn from my mistakes. I finally went to see someone when I exhausted all other options. Uh, when I got to the point where it was pretty obvious that I was going to get fired in the next month or two if I didn't do something else. And for me, seeing somebody was, the last resort. And I feel like I wasted a year or two in between my initial ADD diagnosis where they said you also have bipolar and actually getting treatment for what was by far the much more severe issue. So I would say, you know, if you're getting to the point where you have an inkling that something might be wrong, there's been a pattern and regardless of life situations, depression seems to, and I'm speaking just about depression, not other mental illnesses, but because I don't have a ton of experience with them. That's what professionals are there for. Like if it's kind of like, if you found a little lump on your skin, you're like, Oh, how do I know if it's cancer or not? Like, well, you don't like go see a professional who went to school for this stuff. And that part can be really hard. Um, and I don't want to trivialize and we can talk about that later. Uh, the difficulties in, um, actually setting up uh, an appointment to see a professional. But if you're worried about it, go talk to someone. If you go talk to them and they say, hey, you need to go on meds or we think you can go on meds, you can decide then if you want to do that or not. Um, or you go see a therapist and you don't like them, you can decide whether you go back to. But seeing a professional, all it does is just give you more options and it lets you be a little bit more informed and just opens up a couple other paths for you. So Greg, that sounds like a good way to frame things. One of the things that I've learned is how challenging it can be to get from that point where you say, oh, 
I need some help. I, you know, I would, I want to go talk to somebody. I, you know, I want to be in therapy and getting yourself from the moment of that decision or that realization to actually sitting down in a chair in someone's office can be very challenging and quite a difficult journey for some people. It is so incredibly frustrating. If I were going to start a startup right now, it would be solely around reducing the friction to getting someone their first appointment and uh, with a mental health professional. And I hope that somebody out there goes and does this or that uh, we could do it at some point in the near future. But And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what you did with the CBT stuff. So, um, Well, sh- sure. The, I, c- I can talk about that a little bit. The, you know, I, w- I was doing a startup that was you know, for doing CBT online as a website. And, you know, our eventual goal was to, you know, help people with depression and anxiety and all the, the common mental illnesses. So, C- so CBT, that I, I'm going to ask yeah, you for a yeah. definition, Josh. Yeah. Okay. That, that's totally fair. Cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a relatively modern form of therapy. Uh, it involves some talk component usually where you're, you know, you're having conversations with a therapist, but a lot of it is, is exercises that you do on your own time where you, you know, have some techniques for identifying thought patterns that contribute to uh, whatever condition you're experiencing and uh, ways to break those thought patterns down, find, you know, see where they come from, see which ones are, are helpful thought patterns and which, which ones aren't. And that's an incredibly simplistic overview of it. But there's a ton of research that shows that CBT can be incredibly effective at dealing with things like depression and anxiety and a whole range of issues. And uh, you can often do it without medication and, and still make good progress. And the thing that I think a lot of people really like about CBT is that it's possible to start getting relief very quickly. It's not like uh, psychoanalysis where you can, you know, spend years talking with your therapist before you start to uncover the foundation of these issues and move, you know, be able to deal with them. CBT is something that you can get, uh, start to get results in a couple weeks. It's something that's, that's very straightforward. And, and these days it's, it's pretty well understood how to use it for a lot of different things. So when I was working on the startup, I discovered how challenging the whole field of like online mental health is. There's never been a significant success in that area, maybe even not even a modest success in that, in that area. So it's, it's very difficult to get funding for a startup that's doing this because nobody has any track record in the field. So it's difficult to convince investors that they should put money into an unproven field. And then there's all the stigma around things. And then there's all of the sort of infrastructure challenges, putting together, you know, a whole new field and dealing with things like HIPAA and regulation and insurance. So it's going to be really valuable when something like this appears and people can start using the internet and our most advanced communication technology on the planet to help us get you know, help with mental health issues. But there's still a lot of roadblocks involved in doing that. And it's probably going to re- involve some big player getting involved and knocking down a lot of these roadblocks because it's a very challenging thing for small players to do. No, I just wanted to chime in here and say that while we were talking earlier about how uh, mental illness can be quite different from physical illness and in uh, some ways, this is one way in which they are almost identical. Um, getting help is difficult. <laughs> People are just naturally uh, resistant to that for some reason. I, I definitely have this problem. Uh, and I talked about it a little bit in my talk, but you know, it's uh, over time I grow weaker. And so 
I'll wake up some morning and realize that I can't do something the way I used to do it, right? And my first instinct isn't to go get help immediately. It's to reevaluate and try, uh, okay, so I can't do it that way anymore, but maybe I could find this other way that makes it easier for me or whatever. And typically I can, right? I, I almost always can find a different way. But there comes a point when the cost benefit doesn't make sense anymore. Like, can I pick an object up off the floor? Yes, I typically can. If it takes me 30 minutes to do that and totally wipes me out, does that make sense? <laughs> you know, if Dana's in the house, I could say, hey, Dana, can you hand me this thing on the floor? That takes like 60 seconds. I get the item. I'm not worn out and I have energy to spend somewhere else. Right. But that's almost 40 years of experience of me talking there. Uh, I've learned to pay attention to the cost benefit analysis. And that was very difficult in some things. I mean, I can name things that I've always started asking for help on in the last six months or so that, <laughs> you know, we're just ridiculous. We, we all have this natural aversion or, or think we can handle it ourselves when sometimes it's okay to admit you can. Yeah. Greg, how did you actually get yourself into therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. I would, I, it's fairly easy to get yourself prescribed stimulants for attention deficit disorder. Uh, perhaps too easy. Uh, and, but I finally had a doctor who was writing me the prescriptions who said, I'm going to stop writing these for you until you see a psychiatrist. And so that's how I ended up seeing a psychiatrist. Prior to that, I thought I had the ADD. I found someone who specializes in that. And then she made the, uh, the recommendation, um, or she made the diagnosis with the bipolar. What I found in the last year or so, if you have someone who's looking for, for help and you want to take that first step, you have a couple different, uh, let's just call it, uh, classes of, classes is the wrong word, but, um, people who are in different situations. So you have a situation where you're employed and you have health insurance. And I'm talking about people in America. Uh, James and I were over in Scotland and they're like, yeah, I, Thought I, there was a guy who sat in on the talk, called up uh, his general provider the next day and like got a referral. And then two days later, walked out with meds and everything was free and was like infuriating that our system's not like that. But let's say you have insurance. You can call up your insurance provider and or you can look online, but their websites tend to be pretty horrible and you can find a provider. That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is that you get a referral, but because we don't talk about these things, it can often be difficult to get a referral from a friend. You, there's probably someone in your office who sees a therapist or a psychiatrist and you probably just don't know about it. Um, which is another great reason why if you are struggling with this and you feel comfortable talking about it and letting people around you know, it's great to be able to refer them. So first step is you can call your insurance or get a referral. If you don't have get, insurance, get a, get a referral from your from your like primary physician. You can do that too. Yeah, you can talk to your primary physician or just from a friend. Uh, which I because what I found at least is the the greatest indicator whether or not you're going to be successful with therapy is if you feel emotionally comfortable with that person. And unfortunately, there's a, a pretty wide range of quality amongst psychiatrists and therapists. You know, we pair in programming so that we can get better and so that our peers raise us up and we make each other stronger. Therapists and psychiatrists operate almost entirely independently for most of their careers. I mean, there's 
only one therapist in the room or one psychiatrist in the room when you're doing this stuff. So there are some amazing psychiatrists and therapists out there. There are some incredibly poor ones out there as well. And it's hard to tell that. Like there are some sites and I have a, a couple of links to them on my blog at bogus.com slash depression, or you can go to devsanddepression.com that are basically like the Yelp of mental health professionals. But it's hard to tell when you're looking at 20 or 40 people, which one you should go with. And often if you're already dealing with some sort of anxiety that paralysis analysis or what is it? Analysis paralysis kicks in and it's hard to choose. And that's what Caleb said is I'm not going to just cold call a bunch of psychiatrists from the yellow pages. So just having a friend say, make it simple for you. And it becomes about, are you going to call this person or not? And not which one of these 40 people are you going to call makes that that first step a lot easier for you. So Greg, I'm actually like dealing with some issues right now and decided, okay, I could use some therapy. And I have, I have, I live in San Francisco. It's like half my friends are in therapy. So it's, it's, it's not like a, it's actually nice being in a place like this where there's some consciousness around therapy and mental health treatment. So it's not as huge a stigma around here. And you know, around here, people, you know, cocktail parties talk about their therapists and their meds. Yeah, maybe yeah. not all cocktail parties, but it's it's a fairly comfortable environment for that. So I so I'm actually looking for a therapist right now, and my sister's a, a therapist. She's a psychiatrist, and you know she knows you know how how to deal with this stuff. And and she told me she's like you should go out and interview people. You know, it's like you were saying, Greg, that there's a wide range in not just treatment approaches, but in quality of therapist and, and things like that. So she said, you know, you should have a little, you know, interview sheet that you, and you know, and call people and have about like a 10 minute phone conversation with the therapist to see if you're even like in the right realm of, you know, they're going to be a good match for you. I think that's a great idea. Like the, I mean, the ideal situation is you set up appointment with three different therapists and you take one session with each and then you stick with the person you feel the most comfortable with. As long as your insurance allows that, right? Can be kind of exactly on that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, it's the they make it incredibly difficult. If you don't have insurance, a lot of therapists and will operate on a sliding scale. Um, so it'll be cheaper. Um, and then depending on your city, oftentimes there's some free resources or free mental health clinics available, but obviously the, the quality of care is probably less than what you'd get, um, individually, but it's gotta be better than nothing. I actually know of one case where, um, you know, uh, someone got to the point where they thought maybe it was something they needed to do to see someone and they, they admitted this horrible, you know, fear of doing this whole process, this, uh, you know, finding someone to talk to or whatever. And um, it was actually a couple of their friends that stepped up and, and were like, you know, well, what are you looking for? And and they talked it all out and kind of made a sheet. And then these two friends actually went through and looked through a bunch of um, uh, professionals that were available and limited them by, you know, they took their insurance and they did the things that they wanted. And I just thought that was interesting how, you know, it was weird how this person was, you know, willing to go and probably thought that needed to happen. But just this first step, you know, so many barriers there, you know, to just push them back at you. And once they got some help with that stuff, they went and, and that was that, you know, but they had to have that help. I think there's um, there's a, a terrible positive feedback loop that happens when when you're dealing with an issue like depression with, with, with and you know depression stands between you and the rest of the world. You know, some days you just can't even get out the door, and 
all of the things that you need to do to deal with your depression and get and find a therapist and get and you know get out the door and go to and go to the you know to the sessions and do the work doing that stuff that it takes to get yourself better is something that is made more difficult by the condition that you're trying to deal with i met my wife right around the same time that i set up my first appointment with a psychiatrist and i don't think i would have made it without her and the problem with depression is that like for me before i was treated here in chicago like in the winters it can just be really depressing if you suffer from any kind of seasonal affective disorder and so in february is my goal for life was uh, get out of bed and feed myself and make it to work uh, and if i could do that that was a successful day that felt like the limits of my mental capacity so to wade then through insurance which is uh, I can really think of many things that are more painful for me to consider than dealing with insurance. To do that when I have such limited mental and emotional capacity is so hard. And then on the good days, I feel like, oh, hey, I'm fine. I don't need anything. <laughs> so uh, it's like when you know you need help, you are mentally incapable of getting help. And then when uh, when you're capable, you feel like you don't need it. So having someone else along will help. And I try to be really careful as I talk to people who reach out after the talk, not to try to solve their problems um, and just to try to listen and, and validate what they're feeling. And the one thing I will do, though, is just ask, would you like some accountability in seeing somebody? So if they tell me I'd like to set up an appointment or I'm going to do my best, I'll say, OK, would you like me to check in with you in a week and just see how, you know, if, if you did that? And every once in a while for some friends or whatnot, I'll go through and just say, OK, you know, could I could I just look through, like, if you tell me what your insurance is, I'm happy just to go through and, um, and just, I'll pick, even if it's at random, um, two people so that then you, your decisions between two people, not 40 that are on this list. And, and just getting them that first appointment can, if you are, if you know someone who's suffering, I think James, it's just such a great point that, um, it's something that might be a lot easier for someone who's not struggling with mental illness than the person who is. We know that yeah. from programming too, right? That, uh, more, more choices just paralyzes us, right? Like if we say, please estimate this feature, like you have the infinite range of time to answer, right? Or if we say, is this a feature that's going to take you an hour, a day, or a week, <laughs> right? Then it's a lot easier to put it in one of those boxes, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the flip side of that, of like you, you know your own path to do what you can and overcome barriers to get yourself uh, some help is what you're saying about offering help to friends and it's just like you know sometimes when you're in a really deep, deep hole you can't climb out on your own you need somebody to throw you down a line Absolutely. and a lot of times you know, you know people are down in that hole and they can't even see that that they're in the hole or that there's a way out and yeah. and you know i found that just like talking to your friends if, you know if your friends seem to be you know struggling or stuck or you know they're not showing up for events or or what have you just talk with them. It's like your friends. You should be able to just talk to them and say, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? Do you need some help? Yeah. And it's tough because you have to do that gingerly um, right. because we don't like asking for help in our uh, society. And what I've found for me, the best way to do it is is just to share my story and not even to share it under the pretense of like, I don't think I could have gone up to Caleb and say, hey, I think you have bipolar because um, he would have said no. Um, and then probably not wanted to talk to me over again because, you know, the first phase is denial. So I just shared my story and said, and kind of made a segue in a conversation one day and said, yeah, you know, I used to struggle with this stuff. This is what it looked like for me. And then pause 
And she's like, yeah, I think I might be struggling with some of that stuff too. Oh, really? Well, if you'd like any help with that, um, I could, you know, I'd be happy to help out in any way I could. And that, it that, might- that's a beautiful way to throw someone a line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the problem that I have is I don't have the story, right? I don't have, you know, well, this is what I went through. So how do I do that? You might not have mental illness per se, but there's probably something in your life like that is shameful for you or somewhere in your life where you felt weakness um, and where you needed help. And I think one of the, the biggest killers with mental illness, if you pull back a step, is the shame. Uh, and it's the shame of feeling like a lazy bastard or shame of feeling like you're wasting the talents that were given to you. And so, you know, some people have mental illness. I think that that James getting up and talking about his disability in front of a room of a couple hundred people, I, I guarantee that somebody said uh, was able to then talk about one of their weaknesses uh, because of that. And so it might be uh, depression, it might be anxiety. For women, eating disorders are often, I mean, for men too sometimes, it might be a, a physical disability, it might be a divorce. There's so many different things that happen in our lives that we just feel shame about. And I think just the act of being vulnerable about whatever it is that you're going through will encourage other people to be vulnerable about what they're going through. Right. Greg, uh, th- something you said uh, brought up a uh, connection for me, and that's that th- there's a lot of life events that can knock people into depression. And like a very common one is getting a cancer diagnosis. Mm. And I think a lot of oncology programs now, you get a cancer diagnosis, and part of what they do is they start referring you to a therapist so that you can start getting some counseling. Because, because the mental outlook on how you deal with your, your physical illness uh, can have a huge effect on the outcome. That's absolutely true. Uh, it's well known in uh, MD circles, the particular disability I have. Um, you know, it's it's exactly that. If you run into something you can't do anymore, you know, you have two possible responses. One is you get very upset about that, realizing that you could do that yesterday and you can't do that today. The other is like, oh, I'm going to have to have, find another way to do that, you know, or whatever, which the you know, person with a positive outlook is more likely to go that way. And thus, you know, they have significantly less problems. <laughs> That's really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to come back around to the other question then. I, I haven't really, and I don't know if I'm just not sensitive to this, but I haven't really run across people who are in that place where they could use help or use encouragement to get help. And maybe it's just because I don't recognize the signs. Maybe I'm just not you know, sensitive, maybe I'm too uh, focused on myself or what I've got going on. I don't know. But uh, what what I'm really concerned about is the people that I work with, the people that I care about, the people that I interact with. Are, are there signs or signals that they're going to give you that they don't even recognize that are going to say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling? I, I want to I get this a little personal around this, too, because uh, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people in our community remember it wasn't that long ago that one of the founders of Diaspora committed suicide. Uh, although, you know, like the details around his death are still not publicized. It's pretty commonly accepted that it was a suicide and that it was, you know, depression was involved. And, you know, I wasn't close with Ilya, but I knew him and he was, uh, you know, a fixture around the pivotal office for quite a while. You know, always seemed like a happy, positive outlook kind of guy. And, 
I think that, you know, his suicide affected a lot of people and got a lot of people out there thinking about mental health issues in a new way. But one of the, one of the things is that sometimes there just aren't any obvious signs that someone who's a layman could notice. You know, even if you like really know someone really well, you know, they can have a lot of stuff going on that they're just like really good that you know, they have a very well constructed set of coping behaviors and you can't tell. So especially in our community where we're dealing with incredibly intelligent individuals who are great at putting up fronts. Yeah, I, I can tell you that some of the people that I'm closest with that I see periodically in person, like if I see them in person, I can tell because they're behaving differently than the way that they are when they are, uh, you know, happy and healthy, so to speak. But, uh, you know, for other people, you know, I, I care and I want to help if I can, but I just don't see any of the signals at all until, you know, un until it kind of becomes apparent in another way that they really were in trouble. Yeah. So what about, yeah, yeah, this is a little bit of a segue here, but, but what about just like monitoring and preventive care and things like that with, with our, with our bodies? You know, everybody's all about Fitbits now and, you know, tracking their steps and, you know, and we, you know, for you know, centuries, you go to the doctor and they, you know, measure your, your blood pressure and your temperature and your, you know, your basic physiological markers. And, you know, we get better at that all the time. You know, now we can measure all sorts of things about our biochemistry and our genetics even. So there's all this attention that we pay to monitoring our physical bodies and keeping them well and changing our diet and changing our exercise and taking supplements. Is that what, you know, what do we do about that and our brains and our you know, brain health or mental health? Uh, that, certainly. So we were talking before the show about um, mood trackers. Um, there's one, I haven't personally used it. It's uh, moodscope.com. And it will, I think it either sends you an email or it's an app um, that you have to track. And it basically says, how are you feeling today? And I think you give it a score. What I like about it is that it will, you identify a couple of your friends. Um, so the woman who told me about it had set up, I think her sister and her best friend. And it emails them every day and says, uh, you know, so-and-so checked in and they are at a four out of five or they're at a two out of five. And so there's just this aspect of, involving friends to keep you accountable because you're typically not going to loot them in when you're feeling really bad. So setting up an automated system to do that. But there's a number of mood trackers out there. Fitbit has one that's buried in the app. And then there's several apps available. And then this one here is moodscope.com. But they will, you know, I think for programmers, just data helps. And there's the Drucker principle that which gets measured, gets managed. And uh, if you can uh, just keep track of where your mood is, oftentimes that can be quite revealing when you look back at the patterns uh, over history. I listened to the Heroku episode recently, which I was not on for, and there was a great quote in there from Ryan Smith, I believe, that uh, said, you don't have a performance problem in your web app, you have a visibility problem. Because once you can see where the performance is going bad, you'll fix it, right? <laughs> That's how we do things. So... I imagine get a similar thing applies here, right? You have to somehow get some visibility uh, to the patterns, like you were saying, Greg. I think we also have this uh, habit of, like, we go to our doctor and we get an annual checkup, that you get your annual physical. You know, should we be doing, like, you know, mental health annual checkup? That's an interesting question. Like, how come we don't think about that, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I just, but if there's all of these, like, 
if it's hard to see warning signs in our friends, if it's hard to reach out for help yourself, it's like you brush your teeth twice a day, whether you need it or not. You just go check in with somebody, you know, once a year, whether you need it or not, just to make sure you're doing okay. And I guess that doesn't have to be a mental health professional, but it should be somebody. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Especially, you know, if you have a spouse, that's just a natural person right there who can be quite close to you and can tell when things are, are different. And I, I found with my wife and I, for us just to be able to, like, I, I can say to my wife, I'm feeling a little bit depressed today. And cause I still, even though I'm treated, I still have days when I'm depressed. There are days now, they're not weeks or months. Uh, I'm not crippled by them. I can still get up and go to work, but I still have days when I can say to her, you know, I'm feeling kind of depressed. Like I don't want to go out with friends tonight or if I'm short with you or whatnot, it's because I'm feeling a little depressed. And it's incredible just to have someone who I, I can speak that to and she just responds with lots of love and, and empathy about it. So it might not be a spouse, but if you have a friend or someone like that that you can check in with, it makes all the difference. Yeah, great. I, I wanted to ask you about something that I think is a, a potential barrier for people getting help. And that's, uh, what, like fear of self discovery. I think that, you know, I, I grew up in, in a very introspective culture and I have, so I have a, I have a very long personal history of, you know, meditation and introspection. And I think I'm fairly, you know, aware of my own internal landscape and, and a lot of my issues. I know that I have tons of work to do because I'm a human being, but I at least have this attitude that I like learning about how things work inside my head. But I know that there's a lot of people who don't have that kind of background. And especially when your head is a little messed up, and I I don't want to use that term flippantly or disrespectfully, but I I think when there's that kind of stuff going on inside your mind that makes you feel broken, the whole idea of going out and learning more about yourself and and what's going on in your mind can be really scary. I can see how a lot of people might be afraid to learn what's going on. And that could be related to i'm gonna to have to go on meds but it's more just like oh what am i going to find out about myself and maybe i'm not going to like it i'd much rather think that i'm having a, a series of bad days than think i'm sick we all do that i agree yeah i would much rather have a series of good days and i think that's where i finally got to that point where i, I didn't want to admit that i had bipolar because i i didn't want to admit a that something was wrong and b that that i couldn't fix it on my own so i i suffered for you know, two years after a professional told me that I had it. And I finally just got to the point where I said, I will be more valuable to the people around me. I will be more valuable to myself. And ultimately, I can tell you now after five years of treatment, that life is just immeasurably better. And the cost was truth and humility uh, and facing like whatever is going on in your brain, it's there. Um, and, And that's the truth. And you can put your head in the sand. This is not something that works particularly well in programming. Um, and it doesn't work particularly well uh, when you're dealing with your own brain. And so, yeah, there's, there's going to be costs. And you just have to ask yourself, what would be the benefits of getting a diagnosis and getting this information? And programmers are typically people who the more information they have, the, the happier they are. You know? And so do the, the benefits outweigh the costs. I think it's an interesting uh, comparison between the two because a lot of times when we've talked a little bit about this, you know, we're like, well, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. But the flip side is, is that if you're not at 100%, then you're not helping anybody either. And so you you will be better off and, and everyone else will be better off if you just take the opportunity and go get the help. 
The other thing that I think is interesting that came to mind when Josh was talking was that a lot of times the tool that we're trying to use to fix our mind is our mind, you know, and a lot of times we just need somebody else to come in and kind of take stock and measure this stuff so that we can get an understanding of things. Because if your mind is the problem, then it may not be able to come up with a solution on its own. That is such a great point. And that it's one of the hardest things for me to realize was that some days my brain lies to me and that my brain can take take in facts, run them through a faulty uh, analysis and spit out a totally incorrect conclusion. Things like uh, there is no hope, it's always going to be this way or people are talking about you behind your back or whatever, a whole host of things. And just it forced me to seek external confirmation of my thought process, both from other people or say like I journal quite a bit. And so I try to see like, are, are my thoughts or conclusions about these things consistent over time? Or is it possible that my temporary uh, emotional state was affecting my thought process and my conclusion, my decision making, but absolutely realizing that your brain is telling you that everything's fine. But if your brain is wrong, then you can't fully trust that. Uh, it was just a huge epiphany that finally got me to, to get help and seek external help on this. That's true in so many things. I'm a lactose intolerant. And uh, for years, I just I had trouble with it, but didn't realize it, you know, and then finally got to the right doctor who knew the right questions to ask. And it's amazing how he just knew the lies you, I'd been telling myself, right? Like he was all let me guess, the last couple of times you've eaten pizza, the pizza was bad, or you know, just <laughs> things like that. He knew how you would explain it away, you know, and everybody does that. You know, their brain does that. It explains it all away and makes it okay, and you can't trust it. You have to validate from an outside source, like you said. Yeah, and and I really want to just drive home a couple of points that we've made here, and one is is that if you're struggling, I mean, with anything, and the thing that I run into is most of the time I bounce back. I mean, if I have a hard time, I bounce back. But even then, for a quote-unquote normal person, you know, somebody who doesn't struggle with some of these issues, it still helps, it, you know, whether you're making excuses and you actually need help or whether you, you know, don't necessarily need professional help, talking to somebody always helps. Always, always. At least for me, it does. And so go talk to somebody, you know, and, and just get that external validation. It doesn't have to be a doctor, but, you know, you, you may get the feedback that you need to determine what you need to do next to make things better, or you may get a determination that you really do need to go talk to a professional, but go talk to somebody. And, and the other thing that I, I really want to just drive home is that there are these social stigmas, but most of them are in our heads. I mean, it sounds like Greg, Josh mentioned he's struggling a little bit. People just want you to be happy, really. You know, the social stigma is, it's real, but at the same time, it's, it's just not important when it comes to this stuff. And, uh, you know, I really hope that we can find ways to help people help themselves and help uh, other people figure out how to help the people that need the help. Yeah, I, I want to add to that a little bit, Chuck. I think that, you know, what, what you said was great. The, the thing about, like, when your friends talk to you about it, that a lot of times, maybe even all the time, when somebody shares an issue they're having with you, they just want you to listen to them and let them know that you heard what they had to say and that you can you know, understand a little bit of what they're going through and that you're still their friend. You're going to be there for them. I think a lot of us, our first reaction when someone starts sharing difficulties they're going through. Josh, I'm an it, engineer. I can fix you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that's 
almost certainly the wrong response when, when, when someone opens up to you. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if I'm depressed and I've been struggling with depression for years, I guarantee you everything that's a quick fix, I've probably thought of and tried. Mm-hmm. When we had Angela Harms on the show, she toted how good uh, the book Nonviolent Communication is. And I've mentioned it before since Angela's been on. Uh, I read it on her recommendation. And uh, it covers this uh, in great detail about how that that first reaction we have that Abdi demonstrated so beautifully is just totally wrong. People don't want that. It means you're you're not listening. You're not validating them. You're not, you know, it's that's not what they're after when they start telling you their problems. It's a good read. That goes for husbands, too. I was going to say the same thing. I found that with my wife, it's much that way where she doesn't want me to tell her how to fix it. She just wants to know that I get it. I just, I don't know. It's it's a kind of an ill-formed thought, but I wonder if the style and pace of at least part of our industry kind of encourages some forms of depression or, or maybe exacerbates them. I mean, we do brain work for a living, and there is this emphasis, especially in the startup world, on just going all out and working yourself so hard and, you know, and... and I, I'm not sure if this is scientifically validated, but I feel like there is a strong link between doing brain work and depression. In fact, I feel like I've read some stuff about depression basically being the, the mind's way of resting. Sometimes. I'm not saying it's always that. You know, there, there's, there's depression that's, that's just, you know, basically it's, there's, there's something that's a hormone that's off in your head or something, but then there's also depression that comes and goes uh, as a result of your mind just saying enough. I don't know. Do you think that's that's something that our industry can kind of push people into? I think it absolutely can. I also think that people with depression and bipolar and ADD are attracted to our industry. Uh, if you look at some of the symptoms of bipolar, ADD, the things like hyper-focusing, social isolation, irregular sleep patterns, especially like onset insomnia where it's difficult to fall asleep at night and hard to wake up in the morning, uh, we know that mental illness or depression correlate with people with above average intelligence. So if you are struggling with this stuff as a kid or as a young adult and you happen to stumble across the software development world, you're going to find a whole bunch of people who are just like you. Um, and you're going to find a place where you can be a loner, a place where you can stay up till three in the morning working and where it's okay if you have three days where you barely sleep and you're incredibly productive and then a week when you don't do a whole lot. And I think that software development tolerates the symptoms of mental illness way more than, say, accounting does. I would um, say it sometimes glorifies it. Yes, I would absolutely yes. agree. Have you ever seen when um, Blizzard is getting ready for some big game release? If you go through and read their blogs, sometimes they'll have like pictures of the offices and where the devs are working. And if you look back in the corners, you can usually see like the sleeping bag in the corner. You know, I always see that picture and think it's like hugely tragic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I have a tricky relationship with this whole concept because I mean, it's basically the story of my life is I have periods of maniacal focus and then I have periods of depression. And, you know, thus far, it has not interfered with taking care of my family. And so I haven't pursued professional help for it. I've just, you know, viewed it as, okay, this is, this is the way I work. But I just imagine, you know, a younger me 
well, I guess I've kind of been here at some, at, at some points, you know, in a situation where, you know, there's a, a company that's taking advantage of that style of work, you know, that propensity and not really considering the side effects. Um, you know, these days I pretty much can organize my life the way I see fit. And so I can, I can organize my life in, a, in such a way that that doesn't really hurt me or anyone because I can, you know, take time to recover from those periods of maniacal focus. But I worry about, you know, a lot of these people in startups, uh, particularly and also any, really any software company where they're, you know, their, their, their companies aren't taking into account the blowback of encouraging that lifestyle. I agree completely. And to build on that, I think that there's just like a pervasive culture of that in the whole startup entrepreneurship investing community. You know, there's this culture where, you know, hardworking young people are viewed as disposable commodities. And, yeah. and you, know, you, you know, you, you look at Y Combinator, which has had a couple high profile successes and the returns that they make off of those investments are so big that they can afford to chew startups up and spit them out and leave them, you know, broken and depressed and, you know, with no idea of how to move forward, you know, as just a cost of doing business. And, you know, investors make a lot of things possible, but I think that they don't do it in a way that, you know, like the whole culture is set up so that the failures around startups aren't dealt with. And there's just a whole bunch of people who feel like they have broken lives after having spent a couple of years working on something that they got nothing for. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, and I think that's pervasive in our culture. And that, and that's something that like as a culture and a community, we need to do more about addressing. And yeah, that's why we're having this podcast today, right? It's <laughs> part so, of that. So this kind of leads into one other question that I have, and that is that, and we've kind of talked around it a little bit, you know, um, Avdi mentioned, you know, sleep and things, but are there particular things that we can do to make ourselves more healthy mentally or more resilient, or more resilient? That's is, a good word. And, yeah. and basically avoid some of these things. So kind of preventative measures. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, some people, they're just going to, you know, they're going to run into these issues no matter what I think. But for a lot of us, I think, you know, we can hold it off or, you know, just not have them uh, if we're doing the right things. Yeah. Okay. So, so there, there are two things that, you know, I, you know, I mentioned preventive care before, but I, and I forgot this when I was saying that, but, there, but there's actually two really simple things that are easy for everyone to do and are good for maintaining your mental health. And the first one is physical exercise. You know, getting a half hour of cardio every day, it will absolutely clinically proven have, you know, huge effects on your mood. E even if it's just like going for a walk for a half hour is, you know, or wheeling your chair around for a half hour, maybe, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, you know, just the whole, you know, getting your body engaged, you know, we're physical beings. We have these bodies, you know, we need to eat. There's a whole bunch of stuff we have to do to take care of our bodies and getting out and moving, getting, getting your heart rate up is really important. So do yoga, go for a run, do something. And then the other thing is meditation. And there have been tons of, of studies done, a lot of research done that show that a regular meditation program is as effective, if not more so, than medication for dealing with depression. And, you know, so if you can find, you know, 10 to 20 minutes in your day to sit quietly and do some meditation, and there's, you know, like a zillion different ways to do meditation, some of them are extremely simple. Just doing meditation can have a huge effect, and it, you know, and, it, and there's tons of research that supports that. It's not just somebody's opinion. Also, get enough sleep. 
Yeah, yeah, that's the one I would say I see over and over again. People sacrifice sleep every time. And that'll just, uh, that'll kill your mood. Um, it does weird things to, what, serotonin or something? I don't know. Both of those things, though, are really easy to skip on, right? It's like, well, I'll just push this another few hours, you know, and y- you don't have, like, drastic effects from staying up late one night. You don't feel it so much if you don't work out just one day. But, yeah. you know, over the course of a, of quite a period, it does add up. And so yeah, I, just, I remember I, I experimented with polyphasic sleep at one point and a, a few people, a very few people have actually made that work. But it's it's one of these things where you sort of take frequent naps instead of one long sleep. And, and the, the, the goal for people that try to do it is to reduce the amount of time they they spend sleeping overall. And uh, what was fascinating to me was that besides you know, the, the biggest effect that I noticed as I was trying to make it work was that I just became depressed. Um, you know, the, you know, the biggest thing that I didn't, that I wasn't getting enough of, I think was whatever the brain does to just process negative emotions and make you feel level. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. So, so sleep, that's definitely important. I, and then the, the, the last thing I'll add here is diet and that there are, you know, all these chemicals that we put in our body that we call drugs There's a lot of things that we put in our body that we call food that have similar kinds of effects on our, like very powerful effects on, you know, how we think and our mood. Are you trying to say Red Bull without saying Red Bull? (laughs) Well, no, I'm, especially, yeah, I'm actually trying to say sugar and, (laughs) and, you know, sugar, caffeine, there's, there's all these things that we put in our body all day. Smoking, I'm sure has a, has a big effect too. I, I'm not a smoker myself, but I, so that, so there's all these things that we just consume and sugar is probably the worst offender of the lot, but there's a bunch of others too. Yeah. And I think it's also helpful to just be aware of the fact that you might be self-medicating uh, depression or some other, uh, or like for me, I smoked half a pack a day and tried quitting for about nine years and I tried quitting a bunch of times. Um, and once I actually got on my bipolar meds, uh, it was, I was able to finally quit. Uh, I take Lamictal, um, and it's just a mood stabilizer, but I really feel like I was self-medicating, uh, my depression through the, the little bursts, the nicotine bursts that I would get from that. And I know that I drink a lot of caffeine when I'm off my stimulants, my ADD meds. Sugar gives you, or like, I'll, you know, if I'm feeling really depressed, then I might uh, just go eat a whole bunch of McDonald's because it makes me feel good for five minutes and then hate myself shortly afterwards. So just know that, you know, diet is really important. Exercise is really important. It can also be really hard to control those things if you are crippled by mental illness. So for me, at least getting on meds kind of acted as, especially the um, uh, ADD meds in the beginning, kind of acted as a scaffolding for me where it was a stopgap that helped me get a little bit stronger. So then I could build in healthy routines and I could get more organized. And so I took those for about five years and now I, I don't take the stimulants for ADD anymore because I built up these other habitual support structures um, like diet, exercise and whatnot. But I wouldn't have been able to make that leap initially had it not been for the meds. That's my case. Your mileage may totally vary, but that was my personal experience. What about alcohol? Um, I'm, it's just, totally, I'm just totally, totally throwing fine. it out there, but I was, a, when I was going to Scotland to speak about this, somebody said, you know, you might want to be careful uh, just with the terminology is different over there. You say therapist over here and over there, they might say, 
uh, analysis, I think, I can't remember what it was. You say antidepressants over here and over there, they say whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So, so there is a lot of comorbidity in mental health issues. Uh, you know, I believe that's the technical term for having more than one diagnosable condition at the same time. So, so very often depression goes hands in hand in hand with, you know, with anxiety or uh, PTSD or, you know, various other things. And alcoholism is something that can co-occur with a lot of mental health issues as well, either because people are trying to self-medicate and they get, and they get stuck. You know, there's a lot of other substance abuse problems that people get too, not just alcohol. You know, you know, there's, you know, a whole range of, of drugs that people get stuck on. And I, I was smoking a lot of pot before I got, I started on my meds too, because it, it made me feel better temporarily. And I know a lot of other friends who do the same. And it's really easy to kind of demonize uh, addicts, you know, alcoholics or drug users. But a lot of, like, I was doing it because it, it helped. Like, it made me feel better. It gave me a little bit of relief from the pain. And these things became much easier to walk away from. So, you know, alcoholism can be so incredibly destructive. And you were talking about, you know, what are some things you can do? Diet, exercise, help. For me, I found that the biggest help has just been recognizing that there are mental and emotional limitations. Um, James, I loved your talk, like your metaphor for the spoons in your talk about how maybe you could just talk about that really briefly. Sure. It's just that when, like, say, a physical therapist is working with you, it's often difficult to quantify, like, how much energy you might have in a given day. Some people have a limit. Most people have, you know, adequate amounts to do what they need to do, so they don't have to monitor it so closely. But if you have a disability like I do, then you have to be acutely aware of where you're choosing to spend energy. And one way they might teach you to do that is, to give you a handful of spoons and say, all right, these are your energy that you have for the day. So now walk me through your day, you know, and you might say something like, I get up and get dressed, they take away a spoon, you know, I take a shower, they take away a spoon. And now you can see there's this quantifiable thing and you can see how you're spending it. And it's very helpful to understand what you're choosing to spend energy on. I really related to that when I heard your talk in regards to my mental and emotional energy. And I think just recognizing the fact that my mental cycles are limited and there are going to be days when I run out and just saying that's okay. And just being willing to to give myself grace and saying I'm not Superman, like I have mental limitations and there are going to be days at three o'clock where I just have to say my productive day is over. I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to start again tomorrow. Uh, and just realizing that it's going to take, if you start treatment or start going to see a therapist or whatnot, you know, hopefully things will get better, but it will take time. And in the meantime, um, like, yeah, it's, it's great to exercise. You're not going to be hitting up the gym five times a week from the beginning. Um, and if, if you try, if you set that as your expectation, you're going to be disappointed. You're probably going to stop. So when I started exercising, my goal was show up at the gym. I can show up. And if I show up and I walk out, that's fine. The goal is just to start building a habit of of showing up kind of automatically um, and then keep myself entertained. So if I'm on the treadmill, like, I, you know, I, I'll do this thing where it's like I got to go run t- uh, two miles on the treadmill. Well, sometimes I get bored and I'm like, OK, well, maybe I'll just do the elliptical. Maybe I'll like just show up to the gym and find it interesting in some way. And over time, you'll build up habits. But just give yourself grace and know that these things are not going to get better over time. Like you, if you try quitting smoking 10 times and it doesn't work, just try to learn something each time about what caused you to fail this time and, and you'll get better at it. 
same goes for drinking and these other things. So I just find grace and just giving yourself, like loving yourself and recognizing that things won't change overnight is more than anything else has made a difference in my life. I love what you just said there, that one of the most important life lessons that I've learned, which is something that has come to me relatively recently, is having compassion for myself the way I do for others. You know, there's a lot of things that I do in life where I, I just beat myself up for it. I do something stupid and I'm like, God, you're an idiot. What were you thinking? How could you do that? And if I had seen someone else do the same thing, I would have been like, oh, he must be having a bad day. Or, oh, gee, I wonder if I can go give him a hand with that. The love and compassion and support that I'm willing to show the people I care about in my life is so much greater than what I'm willing to do for myself most of the time. And, and if, so true. And, and if I, I just cut myself some slack the way I cut other people some slack and offer them a hand or just give them the space to go with, through what they're going through, when I can let myself do that for myself, then it's like I don't feel so stuck. And, I, and, I, and at least I'm not putting all my energy into, into beating myself up. I can use that energy to go you know, work on fixing the situation or working on myself. It's a great point. This has been a great talk, by the way. <laughs> I didn't know where this was going to go when we started, but I like where we've traveled. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like I've really been empowered to help people out and really just, you know, be a little bit more aware. And uh, I think it's important. And I'm hoping that, you know, we help people that are either suffering the effects of some of these things or help somebody um, reach out to someone who's suffering and, and just make a difference. And that that's really what this whole show is about is you know, making a difference in the community. And this is an important way we can do that. Uh, I have just a couple of things that I really believe that the, the first step to getting better on this is just talking about it. And we were, we mentioned that earlier. Um, Table XI launched a, a site called devpress.com. That's a discourse, the forum thread just out of the box. And there's some developers on there. It's just a community where developers can talk about this. So that's devpress.com. If you don't have anyone else to talk to, you can email me. I'm Greg at BAU. G-U-E-S.com. And I just, I just want to give encouragement to people who feel like they, who feel like there's going to be a backlash against them if they talk about this stuff. And like I was saying earlier, like right before I got up on stage to speak about this the first time, I was like, what the hell am I doing? I have just been so blown away by the response of people. If there's, or if there are people out there who hate what I'm doing or think I'm an idiot, I haven't heard from them, but I've got over a hundred emails from people who have seen the talk at some point, um, who just, you know, write paragraphs and thank me for it or, uh, who say, you know, I went to see someone. So I just, I, I, your brain is lying to you in that regard saying that, you know, your friends are going to turn away from you. Like you'd be amazed at the capacity for love, uh, for the people, from the people who care about you and even the strangers who will just, uh, come to you. And, uh, yeah. So I just encourage you find somebody to talk about it. If there's no one else, uh, you can talk to me. Uh, you can just email me. I just wanted to say that it's more common than I thought. I actually had no idea going into this episode uh, how common something like bipolar is. Uh, so I actually looked it up, and I'll just tell you what I found. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, bipolar disorder affects about 5.7 million American adults, or about 2.6% of the U.S. population, 18 and older. So... Just to put that in numbers, that kind of makes sense. Uh, our listening audience does not come only for the U.S., so this isn't 100% accurate. But if that percentage held true for our podcast, then over 200 people listening to this episode would probably have bipolar disorder. 
I think the important takeaway there too is that you are not alone and there's Absolutely. there's nothing wrong with you and you can get help and it's okay. You know, you don't feel singled out. And, and, and really, I, I really hope that it's come across that we all want to help and we all hope that uh, people will just do whatever it takes to make the most out of life. And if that means to get professional help or help from a friend or whatever, that that's what they do. Agreed. Yeah, thanks. Cool. So, so good time to switch to picks now? Yeah, let's do it. James, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. Well, since we have Greg on the show today, I'm going to pick his blog. Uh, it's pretty good stuff. Actually, I'm going to pick a specific article, which was Code Like a Chef Work Clean. Uh, it was a great article uh, that, that spoke to me when I read it a little while ago. It was a little bit controversial, and Greg talks about that in the, in the article. Uh, but uh, it really spoke to me, and, and this is definitely a good thing. But uh, while you're here, shop around for the rest of the blog because it's pretty cool stuff. I learned awesome things about the Super Bowl reading this blog yesterday. So uh, good blog. And yeah, sure. Thank you. Another thing I'm going to pick, uh, I got to pair with Benjamin Fleischer recently, and he has a plugin called Code Notes. And I don't know if everyone knows, but in Rails, you you have this rig task that can hunt through your Rails app looking for, uh, uh, you know, certain kind of tags to do fix me, stuff like that, uh, and print out a little, uh, you know, output showing you where you've put these special comments in leaving yourself little breadcrumbs. Um, that's been extracted in this plugin called Code Notes, uh, so you can use it on other projects, uh, which is cool. Uh, it's just kind of a simple little handy thing. And then uh, finally, just for fun, I saw this amazing Lego interface uh, yesterday called Build with Chrome, so I assume you have to use Chrome to use it, but you should really go. I'll put the link in the show notes, and you should really go check this out. Just unbelievable 3D interface building with Legos, and boy, is it nice. Just really great. Uh, showing you some of the web at its best, I think. So those are my picks. Awesome. Avdi, what are your picks? Well, let's see. Uh, a few people have mentioned the Dash documentation browser for OS X uh, in past episodes, and there is a Linux project uh, to do something similar that uses the same documentation bundles. It's called Zeal. And it works pretty well. So I found that pr- kind of cool. And it seems to be under pretty active development. If you use Linux um, and you're missing something like that, check it out. Uh, I, I The other day I decided I wanted to get up to speed quickly on Node.js. And uh, I looked around a bit and I found the book Node.js the Right Way by Jim R. Wilson. And this book has two of my favorite properties in a programming book. It is short and opinionated. Uh, so it's... <laughs> it, uh, it was a very nice, um, concise introduction to the Node world. So that's recommended if, if you're interested in that topic. And for a less programmy pick, I will just note that the series An Idiot Abroad, which is a British travel documentary series, uh, is now available on Netflix. And I've been hearing about it for years, and I'm enjoying watching it now. It's a travel show, which is a little different because it shows... Somebody portrays somebody tra- who is not particularly keen on traveling, traveling to uh, the wonders of the world. And it's uh, it's fun. All right, Josh, what are your picks? I think Dave has picked Brene Brown before, hasn't he? Yes. The, yeah, so I, I, uh, I stumbled on one of her TED Talks just a couple days ago and finally had a chance to watch it. And so I, I think uh, I'm going to pick uh, her talk on vulnerability because I think it's relevant to 
what we just talked about today. Because, you know, so, so much of the healing process begins when you're willing to show some vulnerability. So I, th I think that's relevant. And then, uh, let's see, technical. I've been on a bit of a language bent lately. I get that way sometimes. So I caught up on uh, Gilad Braca's language, Newspeak. And Newspeak is sort of what you would get if you tried hard to make small talk uh, semi-functional or like a, a multi-paradigm object-oriented functional language. And I, I think he's, he's done some really interesting stuff with the language. It's pretty cool if you're into languages and, and this whole object oriented versus functional thing. I think it's, it's a, it's a great way to, to look at it. So, uh, and then, uh, let's see. There's a, there's a quick video that I saw. Um, Square does this, uh, code camp thing every year where they, uh, bring in a, it's, uh, it's basically an internship program. But I, I I just loved the video. It was uh it was pretty good. It's all it's all about uh, bringing in a bunch of women in and give uh, like doing internships for the summer or a week. I, oh no, the code camp thing is a, is a week. Then they do they have a different internship program. I'm getting confused here. So clearly, I should stop talking. <laughs> uh, anyway, good video uh, worth checking out. And uh, I think that's it for me this week. Awesome. All right, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. Um, one is is that uh, I've been a freelancer for. a three and a half years and uh, my website for my consultancy or my business or whatever you want to call it has pretty much been non-existent. It's been various stages of broken WordPress and uh, I've decided that I want to get something together that represents what I can do and what I've done. Um, I have clients ask about that periodically, you know, what have you worked on and things like that. And so I've started various Rails apps, and that's always been a headache because all I really need is a content site. And so what what I finally settled on was Jekyll. And uh, I'm I'm sure that plenty of people who listen to the show are aware of Jekyll, have played with Octopress on uh, GitHub. Anyway, so Jekyll is a, basically a static site generator. It's written in Ruby, and you can actually use it to host websites on GitHub. I'm not doing that part of it, but I am using Jekyll, and it's been really nice because I just pulled everything together, and then the rest of it's just uh, writing HTML, and for the blog, writing Markdown, and it's done. And so uh, I'm, I'm really happy about that. I'm also going to pick the DigitalOcean uh, blog post about deploying it. It took me all of like three minutes to get it set up so that I do a git push to the server I'm hosting it on, and it deploys it for me, and that's all there is to it. So it's it's basically as simple as the um, Heroku setup in that regard. So uh, I'm, I'm really happy about those, and those are my picks. Greg, what are your picks? I just want to say I use Octopress for my blog, and I love it. Uh, I love the simplicity of it. I'm writing a book about this stuff, so you can check that out, Devs in Depression. Um, also on another book, uh, a friend, Noel Rappin, is writing one called uh, Trust Driven Development, uh, which I read a little bit of, and I think it's going to be great. It's about how do developers build trust with their clients when the clients inherently don't understand what we're doing and everything he writes has just been awesome for me. I don't know how many people of the listeners do speaking, but I've just been learning a lot about how to craft presentations over the last year. And generically speaking, there's a lot of speech coaches out there. And I worked with one, uh, you can find at speechirl.com here in Chicago, but uh, she can also do remote. Her name's Katie. Um, it's like speech in real life. Um, but just in general, I just wanted to recommend that if you're doing any kind of presentations, find a professional. There's a lot of really great professionals out there and just doing a couple sessions with her 
was incredibly beneficial for me. So I just I encourage you to check that out and you can find her online. Um, and then lastly, I am going to be working for Twilio in about, uh, uh, in about a week. So uh, I'm not officially on the payroll yet. So I think I can talk kind of uh, about them without, um, uh, I don't know what the word is there, but they've been great. And I had to set up several apps just as part of the interview process. And it's just ridiculously easy to send text messages and make phone calls and receive phone calls with their stuff. Patrick McKenzie uses it for all the things he does. And um, I've just been blown away by both their product and the company in general. So check them out, and uh, I should know a lot more about them in the future. So that's it. Yeah, Greg, Greg our motto here is there's no shame in shameless self-promotion. Awesome. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming, Greg. Like I said before, I really hope this helps some folks out, and uh, I really appreciate your expertise on this uh, particular topic. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's just it's really cool to just be able to talk about this stuff, and, um, and I hope more people can do that. Thanks, Greg. Yep. Now, before we wrap up, there's one more thing I want to bring up, and that's our book club book. We're reading Ruby Under a Microscope by Pat Shaughnessy. So uh, if, you, if you haven't had a chance, go pick it up. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you all next week.